Hello, I'm Jessica Powers. And I'm Lee Sager. This week, our topic is a big one, admittedly. Crypto assets, decentralised finance, non-fungible tokens. None of these seem to be very far from the headlines these days. Whether it's Elon Musk attacking Bitcoin, the Bitcoin owner who lost his password to a reputed £220 million fortune, or the environmental concerns associated with mining cryptocurrency. Lee, I think it's fair to say you are Chamber's resident expert on this topic. So my first question is, how and why did you get interested in it? Well, I'm a private client lawyer, and I used to wonder what happens to things on my computer when I die or when somebody dies or becomes incapacitated. And so I started working out from first principles what was going on. And this led me, of course, to cryptocurrencies and crypto assets, which are, of course, the digital assets with real value. So I suspect the vast majority of our listeners are going to be familiar with terms like crypto asset or Bitcoin. This topic does seem to have its own language. So let's start with some relatively basic definitions. What is a crypto asset? It's an intangible personal asset that you can't see without using a computer. The crypto asset is constructed by a computer program and all of the manipulation with it is carried out by a computer program as well. You don't know that you have any or that it exists without another computer program that can show you on your screen a representation of it. And then cryptocurrencies are obviously a species of crypto asset but can be used to purchase things and can be stored in a digital wallet either hot or cold wallets. The people who developed cryptocurrencies, the first one was Bitcoin. They wanted to get away from regulation and law and lawyers and banks and governments. And what they did was they created a language around gold and money. And wallet was the thing that they decided to use for a computer program that helped them to transfer cryptocurrencies. All a wallet is, it's a computer program that holds certain numbers in it that enable the cryptocurrency to be transferred. They don't actually hold cryptocurrency, they enable you to find out what cryptocurrencies you've got and to transfer them on the blockchain. Cold wallets are computer programs that aren't connected to the internet and usually they are stored on a USB key which has a little program inside it that has the information that can enable you to transfer or receive cryptocurrency when you plug it into your computer. The hot wallet is the one that's connected to the internet all the time and that's the one that can be hacked. You mentioned blockchain there, Lee. Forgive my primitive analogy, but I think the New York Times described it as like a long knitted scarf that your grandmother used to make, where each transaction is a row of stitches on the blockchain, and so each is inextricably connected to the one before, and you can't alter or remove a row of stitches or a particular transaction without it being obvious there's a break in the chain. That's a good analogy, but it only goes so far because it is possible to break the chain in some blockchains. In something like Bitcoin, where there are thousands of processors or miners and millions of users, it's almost impossible to break the chain. That's the mechanical image of a blockchain. 
the way I look at it from a legal point of view is when I first started doing property law, we used to have a thing called a chain of title. And if you were buying a property, there was no registration in the old days. You had to go back to see whether enough people owned it before you that you could be confident that you had a title. The blockchain enables you to go right back to the beginning when the cryptocurrency was created to see and ensure that what you're getting is actually a valid acquisition. It's more like a digital ledger of transactions. That's what a blockchain is. It's a ledger that operates in a special way, but it's just a recording of transactions that have happened in the past, and it can identify each transaction in relation to a certain cryptocurrency. Let's talk briefly about regulation. Cryptocurrencies are essentially unregulated. That's their attraction. That's why cryptocurrency was established. But more recently here, as a consequence of the money laundering, terrorist financing and transfer of fund information on the payer regulations 2017, crypto asset businesses now have to be registered with the Financial Conduct Authority. For any businesses that were operating before the 10th of January of last year, they had to be registered before the 9th of January this year. But there is a temporary registration regime, which has just been extended to the 31st of March next year. Any new business commencing after the 10th of January last year has to be registered before it starts conducting business. In the news this morning, there was an announcement that the cryptocurrency exchange Binance had been banned by the FCA. There are a few points which arise out of this requirement for registration. Firstly, and this is something I've encountered in one of my ongoing cases, is that consumers who have bought cryptocurrency or entered into contracts to do so with unregistered crypto asset businesses are now potentially in quite a precarious position. The consequence of doing business with an unregistered body that's carrying on a crypto asset business is that the contract is illegal and you can't sue on it and you can't enforce it. I want to talk a bit about Binance. As I understand it, Binance has several subsidiaries, and one of them is the company that was going to start trading in the UK, but it hasn't done so yet. And the FCA have taken a dislike to it because of some of the things that Binance has been doing overseas. The other thing to think about is that cryptocurrencies is the basic form of crypto asset, and they are designed just to pass value from A to B. But there are other crypto assets that are much more sophisticated, and they can involve businesses where you are giving value to other people to carry on the business for you and make profits for you. And those need regulation on their own. The reason that cryptocurrencies aren't regulated is that they are decentralized. They are running on a computer without any control by anyone. The regulatory intervention has come from an anti-money laundering perspective. There's obviously lots of stories about crypto assets, cryptocurrencies being used for nefarious means on the dark web, purchasing drugs, arms, whatever it may be. Yeah. To what extent do you think crypto assets are still predominantly being used for those dark purposes or are they becoming much more of a consumer utility? In the beginning, one of the reasons for cryptocurrencies, mainly Bitcoin, getting some popularity and some traction was because it was pseudonymous and, and it was good for doing things that weren't lawful. But there have been analyses by 
businesses like Chainalysis, whose business is to trace uh, transactions of cryptocurrencies and other crypto assets. And they have found that although there is quite a lot of unlawful transactions with cryptocurrencies, it's not that great. And it's proportionately getting smaller because most people are investing in it to try to get profits. We've seen the FCA expressing quite significant concerns about consumers being promised very high returns and them then entering into very risky investments. And it's well known that the crypto asset market is extraordinarily volatile, but also on the other hand, potentially incredibly remunerative. Do you think the FCA is right to be concerned? There are two aspects to this. One is that the value of crypto assets goes up and down very quickly and uh, they are very unstable. The other aspect is the one that the FCA is worried about, and that's about people advertising bargains or profits that can't be uh, achieved. If we move on then from regulation to look more generally from a legal perspective at crypto assets, In 2018, the Secretary of State for Justice established the Law Tech UK panel. The Master of the Rolls, Sir Geoffrey Voss, is a member. And out of that, in 2019, the UK Jurisdiction Task Force, comprising, amongst others, uh, the Master of the Rolls, Lawrence Akakusi and Mr Justice Saccaroni, published the legal statement on crypto assets and smart contracts. Can you tell me a bit about the legal statement and what are your views on it? At the time that the legal statement was being done, there were many questions about crypto assets that needed answering. What was the effect of it being transferred? Could it be held on trust? Was it property? If you die owning a million pounds worth of crypto assets, do you have to pay tax on it? Of course, the revenue take the view that you do, and that's probably right. No judge had been asked to make a ruling on whether it was property or not, and there were various views. The legal statement came out saying that it probably was. There was no reason why it shouldn't be. The other issue that was important was the existence of certain computer programs that were running on the blockchain that were called smart contracts. These were designed by the people developing blockchains to do away with legal contracts because they were trying to put into the process everything that a contract could do so that you never had to have a contract. The computer would do everything for you. The issue at the time was, well, are they legal contracts? And the legal statement said, well, they are something else, but they are capable of being legal contracts, but you have to take the usual tests about offer and acceptance, consideration, etc. You've touched on one of the main issues that was dealt with in the legal statement and has also been dealt with in some of the cases we'll come on to discuss, which is the question of whether crypto assets are property. And as you said, the conclusion of the legal statement is that they are because they have all the characteristics of property, but their novel or distinctive features don't disqualify them from being property that they aren't pure information and there's some authority to suggest that information itself cannot be property and that therefore generally in principle they are to be treated as property even though the legal statement accepts that they are not things in action or things in possession to the two classic categories of property. Is that the right decision do you think? Yeah yes I think it's right. There are some things in the legal statement that I disagree with One of them is the characterization of what the crypto asset is. 
let's say you have one Bitcoin and I transfer that Bitcoin to you. The legal statement takes the view that the Bitcoin that I had is extinguished and a new one is created when you get it. I take the view that the Bitcoin is the crypto asset and what I'm holding is just what I'm holding. And the extinction of it is of that holding rather than of the crypto asset. That ties in with the way uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs look at it. They say that each crypto asset is like another one. They call it fungible. The legal statement doesn't look at it that way. It's the mechanical way that the blockchain does it that they're looking at. With Bitcoin, if my wallet looks at the blockchain and tells me that I am able to transfer five Bitcoin and I want to transfer one to you, I have to transfer all five of them. My wallet will say, send one to Jess and send four back to me as change. Some of the wallets, when they send the change, they send it back to the same public address. So in the same key, we'll have the four rather than the five. The old one can still have the same public key, same private key. And what we're talking about there are so-called on-chain transfers that are recorded on the blockchain. But the legal statement also notes that it's possible to conduct off-chain transfers. The way I look at it, there are certain things that happen on-chain and certain things that happen off-chain. So on-chain is the creation of the coins and you can't change that. The judge can't stop that happening. You can't go to the judge and get an injunction to stop Bitcoin creating coins. The other thing that happens is if I tell my wallet to institute a transfer of coins from me to you, that transfer happens on chain. And so that can't be stopped either. Once I click on my wallet on my phone and tell it to go, a judge can't stop that happening. Those transfers that we've been talking about happen on chain. An off-chain transfer is if I give you my private key so that you can actually use that private key to transfer the same Bitcoin to somewhere else. The other things that happen off-chain are things like contracts and trusts and injunctions and everything else that the law can affect, that the judge can make an order against. That brings us very neatly to look at some of the decisions that the courts have made about cryptocurrency. And I think it's fair to say that there haven't been a whole host of decisions so far. But the ones that we do have highlight the sorts of issues that are likely to arise in crypto asset cases. In terms of this jurisdiction, the most significant is the decision of the High Court in 2019 in AA and Persons Unknown. We had an interim application by an insurer for various relief, which ultimately boiled down to seeking a proprietary injunction only. And the background to this application was that a Canadian insurance company had been hacked. The hacker had installed ransomware, which encrypted all of the company's computer systems and then left ransom notes saying you need to pay us X amount of money to get your data back. It had insurance with an English insurance company who was then instructed to correspond with the hacker to negotiate the provision of decryption software and ultimately the insurer ended up paying a ransom of $950,000 in Bitcoin. Unsurprisingly, the main issue before the court, because it had been touched on but never determined in this jurisdiction, was whether the Bitcoins were property. 
in essence, Mr Justice Bryan just adopted the reasoning in the legal statement, not unsurprisingly, and reached the conclusions that they were property, <laughs> despite noting that the legal statement is not a statement of law. That was an important case, and it was timely that the legal statement came out just before that. Mr Justice Bryan went through the reasoning of the legal statement, looking at the way that the law traditionally only looks at things in possession and things in action, and thought that there might be some other way to look at crypto assets because it's an intangible. And the view of the legal statement authors is that you can't have a something in possession that's not a chattel. I have a different theory about that, and the Law Commission is currently, there's a discussion about that. I think that it's arguable that a crypto asset can be possessed by holding the private key. In the AA case, it was clear that it was property for the purposes of the injunction, but that case has been cited several times now in other decisions, and it's unlikely to be challenged unless it goes to the Court of Appeal, and I doubt that it will be overturned on that point. The nature of the proprietary interest is something that still has to be determined. That decision was only on an interim application, I think unopposed. As you say, it's very likely that courts are going to hold that view going forward, not least because of what's said in the legal statement, which is produced by some very eminent members of the profession. Another practical point that I think comes out of that decision is the likelihood that any application or claim dealing with crypto assets is going to have to grapple quite probably with issues about service out of the jurisdiction and service by alternative methods. And that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, there's a relatively high possibility that at least one potential defendant is going to be located outside of the jurisdiction. Obviously, opaque offshore jurisdictions further the objectives of crypto assets in terms of being divorced from the entities of the establishment. There are also obviously significant tax advantages to being offshore, and there are likely to be fairly large sums of money involved. And finally, as we've touched on, FCA regulation and oversight is quite likely to drive any crypto asset businesses in this country, at least nominally offshore. And Lee, as you've already touched on, the speed with which crypto assets can be transferred, a mere touch of a button, means that service by an instantaneous means, be it email or WhatsApp or whatever it may be, might be necessary to prevent dissipation, particularly when you're dealing with interim applications. And then finally, the prevalence of anonymity in the crypto asset world, I think, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Bitcoin has no legal identifiers in terms of names, it's just series of numbers. That may necessitate service on persons unknown, which is obviously what we saw in the AA case, and that can be affected by social media or email or WhatsApp. There had been some concern about that because the Supreme Court had looked at service on persons unknown in a local context and said that it's allowed in certain specific instances, but for the purposes of the injunctions, that has been permitted. The other thing that the AA case brought up is that there are two kinds of holding of a crypto asset. One way to hold it is in your own wallet, and when you hold it in your own wallet, you are what they call pseudonymous because if somebody can tie your name to the public key, then they know who owns it. But in the AA case, what the thief did was he transferred some of the crypto assets to a crypto exchange, which is a business that is on the internet 
that exchanges cryptocurrency for money or for another crypto asset. And the way that's held is quite different. So when you use the custodial services of an exchange, they are holding all of the crypto assets for all of their clients. And normally there's a terms and conditions under which they hold them. And one of the terms is normally that they hold it on trust for you. You log into them like any other cloud account and tell them, you've got some of my crypto assets, please transfer it to somebody else. And as a nominee, they have to do what you tell them. And that was the background in the Cryptopia case that you pointed in my direction, a decision of the High Court of New Zealand from last year. Cryptopia was a cryptocurrency trading exchange and it went into liquidation in May 2019 after it was hacked and lost about £30 million. Not that there's a theme of hacking in these cases whatsoever. Issues arose in the liquidation as to who owned the remaining cryptocurrency under Cryptopia's control and it was valued at about £170 million New Zealand dollars, so not an insignificant amount. The liquidators applied to the court for directions under the New Zealand Companies Act and the court was faced with two questions, familiar questions to us by now. What was the legal status of the cryptocurrency and were they being held on trust by the company for the account holders? Do you want to talk us through the decision, Lee, and give us your views on it? First of all, Mr Justice Gendel, he followed the AA case, he referred to the legal statement and he said, that crypto assets were property. The next question was whether it could be held on trust. And the commentators, including myself, if I may say so, have never been in doubt that crypto assets can be held on trust. But in the Cryptopia case, the judge found that it could be and that they were. And that was a case where the terms and conditions quite clearly said that the crypto assets were held on trust. One of the things they had to do was distinguish between the crypto assets that were held on trust and the crypto assets that were part of the balance sheet of the company itself. He applied the usual three certainties rule, which is a basic trust law principle that you say, well, the object certain is their intention to create a trust, etc. And he went through all of those and said it was. One of the interesting things about that case and a few other cases in New Zealand in England, there have been decisions about computer data where the judges have said, well, that's all information and it's not property. But in New Zealand, they are, I think, a bit more modern about it. They are saying, well, the computer data are on the computer itself. So there is some hardware involved. There is a chattel. You can say that the digital asset, as they call it, is property. And I'm not sure uh, that that will ever be the case in England, but it's clear that the crypto asset is property. It's some kind of interest that's associated with the information that's on the blockchain. But the Cryptopia case is an important one. The trusts aspect of it weren't different from what a judge would have held in England. You mentioned that Cryptopia had terms and conditions, and certainly at least a later version of their terms and conditions may express reference to trusts. Yeah. How determinative do you think that 
was as a factor in the judge reaching the decision he did in New Zealand. And I take note that there was a Singaporean decision in relation to Coin Limited that was quoted in the New Zealand judgment and distinguished. But in the Singapore Court of Appeal decision, albeit very briefly in terms of reasoning, they had held that the crypto assets weren't held on trust. The Coin decision was about a unilateral mistake. It was one machine doing business with another machine, and one of the machines wasn't programmed properly, so the other machine got a really good deal, and the owners of the selling machine tried to reverse the transaction. The court said, well, they weren't allowed to do that because it was a unilateral mistake. There was one English Court of Appeal judge who didn't agree with it, and he took traditional English views on unilateral mistake and would have found differently. But because of the way they decided it, the trust point wasn't really relevant. I'm aware of the time, and I'm aware I'm about to ask you a question that is a huge topic. But we've been talking a lot about crypto assets as fungible assets. And of course, what we've seen a lot in the news at the moment are non-fungible tokens. Do you want to very briefly explain what on earth they are? As I've said, one Bitcoin is just like another Bitcoin. But somebody has created a crypto asset. It's just actually a smart contract, a program that's running on the blockchain where it creates an electronic representation of something unique. It's just like having a ticket. So if you go to the theater and you hand in your coat and you get a ticket for your coat, it has a number on. The non-fungible token is the ticket with the number on. The coat is the thing that it references Non-fungible tokens, they're used for digital art, and somebody recently bought a non-fungible token for $50 million or something like that. What they were buying, actually, was the ticket, and that referenced some rights that they had in some artwork. It probably was only a license to look at it or to use it in certain ways. It wasn't the actual copyright of that artwork. In the future, the idea is that you can buy cars and aeroplanes and dogs and cats with non-fungible tokens, but they have to work out a way to reference the non-fungible token to the dog, and that's going to take some time because they don't keep still. I think in Germany, someone was selling a non-fungible token house for multiple millions One of the ways you can use a non-fungible token is you can buy a property and you can divide it into, let's say, rooms or flat. And for each of them, you give it a number and you create a non-fungible token that has certain rights over that room or that flat. And so if I buy the non-fungible token, then I have a lease of that flat. The reason for having it on a blockchain rather than with a paper document is that I can transfer it just using the blockchain without involving any lawyers. Nobody else is involved, just the people who are doing the transaction. Well, I look forward to the day when lawyers are no longer required to buy houses. Thank you very much for joining me, Lee, and bringing your significant expertise to the table on this topic We've obviously rattled through some of the basics and as you've said, you've done hour-long talks on this topic and it's very difficult to condense down into a short podcast. But hopefully for the benefit of our listeners, we've covered the more interesting and significant decisions from around the world and some of the basic definitions. 
And I think there is no doubt that for better or worse, digital assets are here to stay and we can expect many more decisions on them in the coming months or years. That's for sure. Thank you again, Lee. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Bye.